Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Vegan Business Tribe podcast with myself, David Pennell, the co-founder of Vegan Business Tribe. And if you have a vegan business or you're just thinking about starting one, then Vegan Business Tribe is here to support you and to inspire you, not just to build a vegan business, but to build a successful vegan business. And today, I'm actually bringing you some of the kind of content that normally we only reserve for our paying members over on veganbusinesstribe.com in our Vegan Business Academy. Because in our academy, we regularly interview vegan business experts to pull out all their experience and advice. And today, I'm going to share a masterclass that I recently recorded with Steve Swindon, the co-founder of vegan meat replacement company Love Satan. And Steve, he isn't just your regular vegan business owner. Love Satan, they launched in 2017 from the co-founder's kitchen, but they quickly attracted vegan entrepreneur Heather Mills to invest in their company. And now they supply both consumers and food manufacturers across the country. In fact, their Satan product is used as the pepperoni in a certain brand of supermarkets' own brand vegan pizzas. And the reason that I'm bringing you this content that is normally reserved to our Vegan Business Tribe members only is because we are now officially on our road to Vegan Business Tribe Live at VegFest in November, at which Steve is one of our speakers. And if you haven't yet got Vegan Business Tribe Live booked in your diary, then you need to book out the 12th and 13th of November 2022 at the London Olympia for a weekend full of Vegan Business Tribe Live. And we're going to have somewhere in the region of about 20 speakers over those two days from people like Steve from Love Satan to give you that first-hand experience on how he grew his vegan business. Through to vegan marketing experts, showing you how to get your vegan business in the news, and even a panel of vegan authors about how to write and publish your first vegan book. The event, it is sponsored by the amazing vegan accountants and Keith Lesser from Vegan Accountants. He's going to be around all weekend to answer all your financial questions And in fact, I always say that if you've got a vegan business, then as part of that, you should at least have an accountant who is on board with your ethics. It makes such a big difference. Now, Vegan Business Tribe Live, it is part of the UK's biggest vegan consumer event, VegFest UK. So if you want to attend, then all you have to do is buy a ticket to VegFest and you get full access to Vegan Business Tribe Live as part of that. So to find out more, just head to the veganbusinesstribe.com website and click on the Tribe Live link in the navigation to get all the details. And again, that's on the 12th and 13th of November at the London Olympia. And I really want to see as many of you there as possible. So get it booked in your diary now. Right, 
we really do have a bit of a treat for you today because as I said, this content is usually only reserved for our academy. But Steve from Love Satan, he's going to be on a panel at Tribe Live talking about how to scale up a vegan business. So as a preview, I wanted to share this masterclass session that I recorded with Steve about the phenomenal success they've had at Love Satan and his advice for following in their footsteps. And if you want to watch the video version of this session, then you can find that in our Vegan Business Tribe Academy, along with more than 30 hours of other masterclasses and all our online courses, our interviews and our resource centres. So if you want that kick up your backside to really start taking building your vegan business seriously and that's what we're all here for then just head over to the website to find out more about signing up as a full member and just before we start i'll just add that it's our members who fund vegan business tribe including this podcast so if you really love what we do and you want to help supporters champion the vegan business scene around the world, then please do consider signing up as a member so that we can keep doing just that. I am joined today by Steve Swindon, who is the co-founder of vegan food manufacturer Love Satan. And Steve, I've got to start by saying that actually Satan... It was probably my first experience of a meat alternative back when I first went vegetarian, you know, way before I went vegan. But I found there are a lot of people who don't actually know what Satan is. So to start us off, what is it? What is Satan? Um, what kind of product is it? And, and more importantly, what can you do with it? Okay, so uh, Satan is a wheat-based vegan meat made from a, a high-gluten wheat flour, which is the base um it is very flexible um so think of it almost like a like a deli meat product um so it's really good in sandwiches it's great shredded up and um used as the sort of a mince replacement um you can chop it up and put it in stir fries so yeah it's massively versatile and this is actually amazing because when we talk about meat replacements, we always think that that's quite a new invention. But this is actually a really ancient food. You know, wheat protein has been used in, in various different forms for centuries. And, and I think, you know, the reason that it is being used is something like seitan. It's really high in protein as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's, high, it's very high in protein. And it is simple enough that it can be made in a domestic setting. I mean, it's not, it's not easy. It's a bit hit and miss. And, yeah, but probably similar to tofu. I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, there's probably more tofu made at home than the sold commercially. That's probably still the case with Satan today, actually. You know, you look at some of these other vegan meat products, the newer ones, I and mean, they're, they're, you know, they're clever, sophisticated products with ingredients that are not necessarily straightforward to get hold of. So the thought of making something like that in a in a domestic context, you know, you just you just wouldn't you wouldn't consider it. You founded the company, was it 2017? I think. Yeah, we Steve, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you you founded it with your co-founder Nick, and and so I've got to ask, why this? Out of all the things that you could have done, what made you decide you're going to dedicate the next I don't know five years of your life to making Satan? Well, um, so Nick. Um, Nick had been vegan since he was a child. Um, you know, he's a dab hand in the kitchen. I mean, he's a very talented chef. 
And um, he'd been making Satan for forever, you know, as long as he could remember. And um, we were at, um, we were at Vegan Camp Out in the summer of 2017. And um, Nick turned up with a boot full of Satan and his big cooker. And uh, I don't know if you remember that vegan camp out. There were um, uh, there was massive queues for the food, as there always is a vegan camp out. So we were really grateful. We had our own food, and he was making sandwiches and rolls and inviting people to the tent and having big. And then Nick and I kind of realised we've been looking around for a business idea for a while, and we sort of looked down. And we thought well, we should make this stuff. Uh, we should make this stuff commercially. And then we um, so our initial. Her initial idea was to, we were going to start a takeaway business based on Satan because we saw the big queues at Vegan Camp Out. We saw the demand. And then, so we went down that track for a bit. And then we were doing the taste tests in Nick's kitchen in, I remember when it was, it was in, it was that, it was just after, uh, it was just after Vegan Camp Out. And um, we were, we had this sort of epiphany. We kind of, we were tasting these things. We thought, well, why don't we just make the Satan and let somebody else worry about turning it into whatever the finished product is, a kebab or whatever else. And that was it. And then we were away. So within a month, we built the website, we got the branding sorted out, we were trading and we booked our first commercial, our first event, which was Tooting Vegan Market. Yeah, so we went there, absolutely no clueless about how to approach anything like that. And we were, we were inundated, we were really, really busy. So then we went really bold, and then we decided to take a stand at uh, VegFest in the October, and that was a totally different scale of operation. I mean, it took us it took us something like two weeks to produce enough stock because we were making it in Nick's kitchen on his stovetop. Uh, it took us a couple of weeks to make enough stock to um, to take to VegFest, and we sold out. We we did really well. That is a great story because we we know that one of the first things you need to do when you've got a business idea is to either prove or disprove that idea as quickly as you can. Because you know wh- why would you want to put several years of your life into something which is going to just turn into a dead end? So quite often we we talk about this idea of going out and sampling and doing fairs and events and things like that. So I, I wonder if I could just quiz you a little bit more on that about um, what kind of feed back you got so i mean did you use those fairs to test out things like uh pricing or what kind of yeah. products you're going to make and things like that yeah we, we did and in fact i mean i've i've been over the years i've been approached by uh, people who've got ideas or or you know things they want to, to produce particularly in the food sector and i the, the advice i give them is find an event invest the money in a stand take some of your product along and sell it. See, if, because if people are prepared to pay good money, having tasted your product, that is fantastic feedback in itself. Um, but yeah, you can get feedback on pricing, on flavors. So we were, you know, we were very big on cooking up samples and giving giving as much away as possible. Um, yeah, so it's it is it is a, it is a really good way of getting getting really first hand feedback because you know, as I say, if somebody tastes your product. Yeah, they have a big smile on their face, oohs and ahs, and they say, right, I'm going to buy it. I mean, what better feedback is there that you've got something that is potentially, you know, of value? And I've seen people 
uh, we're talking about testing pricing out and things like that. I've actually seen people where they've done a full weekend event and, and they've broken that into quarters almost. So they've got two mornings and afternoons. So they've tried out different pricing. So they've done one pricing in the morning, a different pricing in the afternoon, just to see if that had any impact. But but what I love about doing events like this is you cannot hide from the customer. The customer's going to be right in front of you. They're going to be asking you questions and those questions translate. So if somebody comes up to you on a market stall and asks you, uh, you know, 10 different questions before they'll buy your product, then you know that's the sort of questions that they're going to have if they come to buy your product through a website as well. So it's just really, really valuable. Yeah, it, it, it is. And in fact, just on the pricing thing, you're absolutely right. We used to test out all different bundle combinations and also the psychology of different price levels as well. You know, if you do something for a fiver, that's kind of an easy decision for somebody. You do it for a tenner, that's an easy decision. £20 becomes a bit more of a a considered approach. The other thing, the, the mistake we made early on is we were, we thought we do we'd be clever do the four ninety nine thing, and that is a nightmare. That's a nightmare to administer on a on a on a, an event. So we stopped doing that. Really Did you have quickly. to take two hundred pennies with you? Yeah, I know pennies, and, <laughs> and then then I, I used to have to do pricing charts, you know, so people could quickly work out how much two of something was and three of something was. So it was a it was a nightmare. So we stopped doing that fairly quickly. So yeah, it is it is a it is a a good way of testing uh, testing out different. We used to and we used to have different. Um, you know, as the event went on, obviously you want to sell your stock. So we used to have different versions of the pricing ready to pull out. Mm. Um, uh, so that we made sure we weren't taking any stock home. And in the end, we we'd often give away the stock anyway because. You know, our attitude was it's better to have somebody had something that they were trying it out and they would buy it than it go in the bit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually a good way to get your product out there is giving out those free samples yeah. anyway. So I know that you do sell your products now through a few different channels and you do still sell to consumers direct through your website, I've seen. I know you're listed in some retailers, but I know that two of your main routes to market is the food services and the ingredient sectors. And I think when somebody's planning to make a vegan food product, these two routes aren't the ones that people think about. You know, actually selling your food product to restaurants or to other food manufacturers as an ingredient. So was that always the plan to get into those sectors? Well, um, I'd like to say, yes, we had some big strategic plan, but it, but it, it didn't happen like that. So um, how we got into food service was we, um, it was the Tooting, was it, I think we did two events at Tooting. And the second one, um, we were opposite, um, it was Charles from Vegan Express uh, at the time. He had a restaurant in Tooting and um, he came across to our stand and he said, I really like your product, I'm going to buy some. So we did a deal with him there and then and we sold him a load of stuff. Um, and he's still a customer today. Um, and then we thought, ah, oh, okay, maybe the restaurant sector is where we want to be. And so we started selling into that sector and it was more the more the business came to us. Um, and then similarly with the manufacturing side, um, we were approached. The manufacturers had heard of us. They Googled. I mean, we, we were always very good at Nick. Nick's previous, uh, previously was in web development and SEO, and he was very good at getting our website ranked. So anybody searching for anything vaguely to do with Satan would come up. Um, and um, then we went into um, a, you know, we sent them samples. I went to meet them. It took, you know, it took probably, it takes a long time with a manufacturer because they're in a development process with their customers, which are generally the big supermarkets. And sometimes they're they're starting their 
new product development process and it might be nine months before the product gets listed so you've got to have you've got to have you've got to be prepared to go on that journey and they want constant samples they want recipe changes we were supplying um samples of our pepperoni into one manufacturer and they said um ah you've got soy in there it needs to be soy free our site is soy free so we had literally within a month we developed a soy free version sent it into them they loved it and on the back of that we then made our whole range soy free because we just used what we did there and replicated it and it was a it was a big turning point for us um but that, that's i mean i mean that's massively demanding and that was in i never forget i was on holiday taking a call from this manufacturer and then ringing nick and saying nick we've got to do we've got to come up with soy free we've got to do soy free somehow so we managed to do it um so they are very demanding but the rewards are that it's, you know, um, they're great to deal with the big manufacturers. You wouldn't, you'd, you'd think some of these big businesses are tough to deal with. And a lot are, but I find the manufacturers, the ones we deal with are great. Um, and, um, you know, they know how to look after their suppliers because they are very reliant upon not just us, a whole number of other suppliers. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's good business. It's, vo it's big volumes it's repeat and it repeats. Uh, whilst the product is listed. Um, on the food service side, let's um, say so we were selling direct and then we got into the wholesalers. And one of the big lessons I learned, and it, in hindsight, it sounds like we were incredibly naive, and I, you know, hands up, I think we were, is that getting a listing with the wholesalers is about 10% of the process, and you can get the listing. What the wholesalers will not do is they will not market your product. You have to invest in generating the pull through. And if you don't, you know, give it three months, sometimes six months, they will delist you. So all the expense you've had getting the listing will just go. So and also they'll take a big margin. They'll take a big chunk out of your product as well. So if you are going to go into wholesalers, one of the you, you've got to be very careful with your pricing strategy early on, because you've got to leave yourself enough margin be able to withstand the margin and the costs of those channels. Now, if you get those channels right, they are brilliant. They can work really well. They take a lot of work. Um, often the wholesalers themselves, you can invest with them directly and they will market through either their own dedicated events, which are always, always we've always found those of value, or their own um, publications, their brochures. They, a lot of them are quite paper-based still. They publish a brochure six uh every six months or possibly every three months yeah and there is so much just like you're saying now that you have to consider when you go into that marketplace some of the companies we've spoken to in the past they say you know when they get listed with a wholesaler they then go through all the people who that wholesaler supplies and they kind of offer them a promotional package saying look we will actually come down to your store for the day we will look to shift a, a month's worth of product in a day because we're gonna have people there doing sampling and things like that but that comes as a big cost to actually you know provide that pull through yeah yeah i mean i used to um I mean, I've done it a number of times, go into some of these independent retailers and actually set up and, and do a cookery demo. So the wholesalers are a great um, channel in that they will deal with all of the, you know, all of the issues around dealing with individual customers. They'll give them their credit and everything else. And uh, But you have to do a lot to create the demand. Um, and you've got to be very clear about what that costs. So... And that comes back to having a pricing strategy when you start out that has enough margin in it that because that margin will be eroded as you grow. 
it's really important um you know i, I you know the simple approach is oh it costs us x to make the product so we'll stick 10 or 20 percent on and that'll be our profit well that if you do that you're going to you, you're never going to make it into the wholesale sector because it's just not enough margin. They take big margins. I'm talking 30, 40% plus. Yeah, so you really need to be working that into your pricing structure right at the start. Yeah. Um, or, yeah. And we hear this so many times. You know, actually, a lot of people, they stay away from the multinationals. They stay away from the wholesalers just because they haven't worked in that, that extra margin at that point. I'm just going to bring you back a step there steve because you you were talking about how um important it was doing the markets and just getting that basic visibility and meeting other people who are on that same journey who become customers or you know can, can help you forward as well and things like that so uh, how did you start those conversations with people like the larger companies because i i, I do know that your product I, I think it's actually the vegan pepperoni on one of the supermarkets uh, own brand pizzas isn't it so so how did you start those kind of conversations and how did you find those kind of opportunities that well that particular one too they called us they found us they did a search and they found us so that culminated in me going to their hq and presenting to their central kind of buying group so they pushed us out to the to the sites and um there was a need for a vegan pepperoni which we then supplied and that resulted in the conversation i was telling you about where we had to switch it to soy free because the whole pizza big pizza sites tend to be soy free which i didn't realize it's not it's not particularly that they are marketing a product as a soy free product it's just soy is not an allergen they have on site so they do not want to introduce it um, it's just yeah. not it just that. gives them those, those future opportunities to, to make those other kind of foods, doesn't it? Just following on with that conversation then, because I, I think when a lot of people think about starting a vegan business, the first go-to that they always think about is making food because it, it, it's just the obvious thing to do. And it might be that, as you were saying, with your co-founder, they're already quite handy in the kitchen or they've developed this recipe. But that conversation that you were just having about taking a product from something that perhaps you're making in your own kitchen at home and all your friends and family are telling you <laughs> it's absolutely amazing, you know, taking that and then doing it commercially, that's going to be quite a journey because as soon as you start scaling up, you're going to get into these kind of conversations that you've been having as well. You're not going to end up with the same product that you started with, are you? No, you're not. You know, I mean... Um it's good to bear that in mind. I mean, sometimes you know, when you're starting out, I mean, we didn't have the experience of, of these bigger, we didn't have experience of manufacturing in a factory. So um, we were quite lucky in that our process for making it in a, in a uh, well, what was initially a domestic kitchen, then we went to a larger commercial kitchen, um, translated into a bulk manufacturing process we, 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 we did have some luck in, in that sense, but a lots of products won't necessarily transfer that easily. And that's, that's an area where it is worth investing in some specific help um, to take a product that is effectively created in a kitchen and, and turn it into a version that can be scaled up. And things like, I mean, I'll just think of an example, actually. We used to, so when we were making it ourselves. So every Christmas, we would make a Christmas version of our what we our roast recipe, which we we actually still produce today. But we used to make it and we, we'd, we'd put a stuffing in the middle of it because we'd make it by hand. Well, the thought of doing that in a factory would be almost impossible and would be very expensive because we used to just, you know, Nick used to, we, 
we'd make the seitan, we literally put a, a, a sausage-shaped bit of stuffing and wrap it round and then shape it and stick it in a pan and it was easy. Well, that, that trying to do that at scale, uh, that's a whole different problem to solve. And I guess it's not just the scaling, is it? Because the retailers, they're going to also have their own demands. They're going to be demanding six months, maybe 12 months shelf life or things like that. They're going to be making demands of your packaging and, and these sort of things as well. Yeah, um, yeah, they do. I mean, the retailers specifically have very onerous uh, technical requirements. So you, there are hurdles you need to overcome as a product um, that can be quite expensive to overcome. Hmm. Um and will require, no doubt, external expertise to help you overcome them. Um, uh, both in terms of the technicalities of the product, maybe adjusting things to help with shelf life, um, and or the how you package and present the product. And I know that some of the vegan food companies that we've spoken to in the past, they've taken that mentality really early on. They, they've said, look, we don't want to just be selling this at markets all our life. We want to be in the big retailers. So we're going to start from day one, making it as if it is a retail product. And so they, they've not even looked at making it themselves. They've, they've got a contract manufacturer straight away. And and I think relatively early on in your journey, you actually started talking to V-Bytes, which is Heather Mills' company. And if anybody listening to this doesn't know about Heather, then she is a, a vegan entrepreneur. She's an impact investor. She's a campaigner. And she's built the equivalent of, um, I guess, something like Silicon Valley, but for vegan companies up in uh, Northumberland, uh, uh, just, just outside Newcastle, I think. And I believe that Heather, she's actually invested in Love Satan, hasn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah. So that uh, we met Heather at... Um... Um, I can remember this show, she was Vegan Life Live in early 2018. And uh, she tasted our product and, and really liked it. And um, um, and then we started a conversation which resulted in her investing in us. And part of that was we transitioned the manufacturer from the kitchen that we were renting into, into the V-Bytes factory at Corby in Northamptonshire. And that was a real turning point for us um, because... Um, I mean, in a way, we took a big chance on the manufacturing side because we had no clue whether Nick's process that he developed would translate into this, what we were talking about earlier, would translate into the factory. And so Nick and I went up, you know, with a boot full of ingredients, knocked on the factory door and said, we're here. And then we went through a boat. We, we ran some tests. And luckily for us, we got it right. We, we needed some adjustments, but we pretty much got it right straight away. Um, uh, and it was a different product. I mean, the texture, when you make it in that kind of environment, you know, it's cooked more under, it's kind of under pressure. So it's a firmer product, but none the worse for it. So, yeah, um, and that was that was a real boost. That, that was a real turning point because one of the things that if you're going to sell into the bigger manufacturers and um, supermarkets or the bigger retailers is you need to produce your product in a certified, in a factory that's certified to what's called BRC, British Retail Consortium, which is the, which is the sort of UK standard. It's the retail standard. And if you're not producing in a BRC certified factory, you're going to really struggle to sell to bigger customers, even some of the bigger wholesalers. You cannot get it, any in their certifications in a domestic kitchen. So one of the things, if, 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 if food companies are thinking about supplying bigger companies they've got to, they've got to think about some kind of commercial premises um, um, you know at, at some point 
Otherwise, they're going to limit themselves to selling their products direct to the customers in small volume at markets or potentially over the web. And I love this, Steve, because this whole conversation about visibility that you had right from the start of making sure you are at these shows, you are at these markets, that is where you make a lot of these connections. It's where you are seen and people can try your product for the first time. But I've got to ask, because we get asked this all the time at Vegan Business Drive, how did you actually get into that mindset of being open to finding an investor? I mean, was this something that you were already looking for? Or or was it Heather coming along and trying your product, which made you think, actually, no, we, we could actually get investment in what we're doing yeah we 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 talked about it we didn't have a specific plan to do it when we rented this commercial kitchen it was actually a a, it was a charity it was a food charity based down in Croydon they had a big it was a big teaching kitchen so it's perfect for us because it was like you know Nick had one oven in his home kitchen we had six ovens we thought this is an interesting point around scaling up actually we thought that we could just literally take what Nick did on his one oven and do it on six ovens and we'd hire staff and um, we'd, we'd have six times the volume. The reality was quite different because what we found was the process was very specific to how what Nick did to it, you know, in terms of how he handled the products and how he did it. So, and it was very hard finding, you know, replicating what he did with the staff that we hired so what he ended up we ended up we did we did increase capacity but not to the level that we wanted because nick had to keep an eye on every bit of the operation all the way through from start to finish there's only one nick and uh, that was that was that was a real capacity constraint so we managed to increase capacity but it wasn't a case of doing what we did and then just multiplying up i mean all sorts of other complications I mean, we had other things. The ovens were slightly different specs so that we found the product burnt early on. So so we realized that um, if we were going to be serious about this business, we needed to get into some kind of factory um, uh, manufacturing type environment to scale up. So we realized we needed to find some kind of, we either need to build our own factory, which would take a lot of money and a lot of time, or we needed to find a partner so, and part of that, we thought, well, if we find the right investor, then that could work. And then Heather, Heather sort of materialised about that point. Magically appeared at yeah. that point, yeah. And, and again, this is a really interesting conversation because the investors that I know, they're looking for companies who have already gone through a little bit of that early pain themselves, that they've already proven the idea, they've already got the product. But you have to get into that mindset again of saying, look, I'm actually going to grow a business. I'm not just trying to make a company here which is going to give me an income. I'm not building a job for myself. I've actually got to sit down and make a business happen. And I think, you know, taking that next step and approaching the investors um, is actually part of doing that. But I know that, you know, when you take that journey, it does start to make a difference to the business in how the business is run as well, because I'm I'm guessing that you had to give up equity share. Um, So so can I ask, how has that made a difference when it's not just two people running a business anymore? There there is other accountability too. Yeah. So, um, no, you are accountable to... um to uh, somebody else who's put who's who's sharing the risk with you of the business um and um but hopefully not always um uh, but hopefully that that's a that the trade-off is you then get access to perhaps customers you wouldn't have access to you get access to expertise you wouldn't have had a- access to so there's a to me there's a very clear trade-off which is a very 
one that we welcomed, that we were prepared to do that in order to get that access because, you know, Nick and I had never been in the food business before. So we were, and to a certain sense, still are at the edge of our experience every single day. Um, so to be able to partner with something like B-Bytes was, um, was, um, was really welcome. Apart from just solving the scaling up manufacturing problem, it's, it's, having, it's having the credibility of being backed by a company that was well-established in the vegan food sector. Um, and, you know, at a simple level, you know, providing introductions on, on the sales side, but also, um, you know, expertise around things like new product development, because um, new product development, you know, when when it's when it was just Nick and I, new product development was Nick spending an afternoon developing a new flavor, and that was it. We were away. You know, once you get into that more structured manufacturing environment, new product development takes a whole new level of complexity because it's not just about developing the product; it's developing the product, and then can you scale it up, and can you do it cost effectively, and how we're going to package it, and getting the labels sorted out, and and all sorts of things. And it's not just about being answerable to, to a shareholder, it's being, it's having, having a, a business that's scalable. Because um, the whole idea of scalability, the secret to scalability is that you scale the business faster than you, than you increase the costs. And you do that through automation and technology and process. Um, uh, uh, so the idea is that you can then scale the business at, you know, three or four times and maybe only, increase the cost by 50 or 100 percent and that's actually a really important part because i know investors don't just want to pay a bag of money to pay your wages or, or, or to pay off some, some some debt that you've acquired over the years they actually want something to happen with that investment they want something yeah. to, to actually scale up to make an impact and I, I think you know people like heather that is why she invests she's trying to make an impact exactly yeah, yeah investors do want to see that so any if you are thinking of investment you know, but a core part of the business plan is being able to articulate that that relationship between costs or investment that's being made in the business and the return on that investment. Because to say, if you've got if you've got a business that if you've got five people and you're turning over X, and then to turn over two X, you've got to have ten people, and three X, you've got to have fifteen people. That that's not that's not scalability. That is just increasing in size. So, Steve, this has been a really interesting conversation about that scale-up journey, about where, where you came from. But I kind of want to round off the conversation by talking a bit more about the brand that you've built and where it is now, and especially the kind of customers that you sell to. Because we know that the biggest marketplace for vegan food, it is the omnivores. It's the non-vegans, or, yeah. or maybe the pre-vegans, if you want to call them this. And this was actually something that I learned from, from Heather Mills at one of her talks, that if you want to build a successful vegan business, you need to make those products that will attract the non-vegans. Uh, I, I think it's something like 90% of vegan food is, is bought by meat eaters. So I was just wondering how much work you've done at Love Satan on identifying who is actually buying your products, who you are selling to, and if you've seen that same kind of take-up um, amongst the non-vegans. Well, I think um, um, I think we are at the moment we are still predominantly a vegan brand. I mean, I think I think certainly more than fifty percent when we last measured it, which was actually a couple of years ago, more than fifty percent of our customers are vegan. Um, so we are currently going through a process at the moment of looking at our messaging and branding and um, taking Satan into the mainstream. I mean, Satan's going to have its day and it's coming and, and, and our intention is to make Satan famous. That's, that's, our, that's our objective. So, um, and the way we're going to do that is by 
um, presenting the brand and, and having messaging that appeals to people who aren't in the vegan camp, but are conscious eaters and who are looking for alternatives. You know, we, we're still going to have our own sort of unique way of, of going about it. You know, our love's in the name, you know, love Satan. And, and so our, our approach will definitely come from that. I think when you do that too, because I, I know you do sell a lot B2B into the manufacturers, into the wholesalers, but that actually creates quite a bit of pull through for them as well. So I know if I was to go down to Pizza Hut now and get one of their vegan pizzas, it would come with a little BioLife uh, vegan flag in it, you know, because they're seeing the benefits and the actual um, consumer awareness of that brand as a positive. It's a little bit like the the Intel inside that you used to get in computers, you know, yeah. and, that, and that kind of thing. So, you know, building up that brand and making people aware of you, it can help on the b2b side as well and that once you achieve that once you get into a brand as big as pizza hut for example and then they are still prepared to signpost your brand within their brand i mean that is an incredible state to get and but in order to do that you've got to have a recognizable brand um you know obviously via life is is recognized this is another company that have done it mm. um you know, you're going to um restaurants they have a burger and they'll say it's the moving mountains burger that actually state what it is because people people know what, what that is so that that as an aspiration i mean that's 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 definitely uh something that you know we'd, we'd love to we'd love to get there but the other part of it in terms of appealing to you know the flexitarians particularly is um is showing people what to do so it's selling the product in um somebody described it to me as a usage occasion so, for example, having a product described as straight to walk, well, people know what to do with that. You know, you might all you might have done is just chopped your product up uh, rather than selling it in a block. But people know or selling it as a nugget or a, a bacon product or whatever. And this comes back to that like for like uh, principle, doesn't it? You know, th this whole idea that asking a consumer to make two changes to their buying behavior is really hard to do you know asking them to buy a new product and then asking them to prepare it in a new way so if you can repackage it and you can make it really familiar to them so there's only actually one thing changing and the thing changing is the actual thing they're buying um you know th then that's going to just make somebody more likely to pick up that pack and, and give it a go yeah and, that, and this is why i mean people often say well why why do vegans want burgers sure they do, you know why, why why do they want sausages well the reason why alternative meat companies produce burgers and sausages because people know what to do with burgers and sausages that is that is a large part of the reason you know the because of what you said you know you, you're only asking them one change in behavior rather than the two changes brilliant well steve this has been a brilliant session it's been a really interesting conversation and i'm i'm hoping that some vegan businesses listening to and watching this who are a few years behind you they might take a lot of inspiration from what you've achieved and what you've shared so i want to wrap up by asking if you've got any final tips so somebody might be sat in their kitchen listening to this they know they've got that good vegan product but they don't know what to do next with it you know how to scale up and have that more impact so what would you say to somebody in that position somebody right at the start of that journey well um um i would say that you know get the product out in, into you know the public friends and family try and sell it get a standard of market uh, or, a, or an event as we talked about and 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 use that to refine the products but i think you know um and i know this this takes 
you know, money and people don't necessarily have money, but there are grants available. Is get advice and join vegan vegan business tribe, for example. Join a network like that and get advice because there's lots of advice out there, lots of people that are prepared to help. And and pretty soon, you know, there's some very specific technical challenges, particularly within the food sector, that you need to overcome. That you're not going to do it just by googling it. You know, it needs to be done properly. And sometimes a relatively modest amount spent with a to get proper advice can save an awful lot of pain and expense later on. So that needs to be factored into any budgeting. Um, the other thing I, I was going to say earlier, actually, and it just occurred to me uh, as we were sort of wrapping up, is that, you know, um, for those businesses out there, everybody, you know, when they start off, their, their dream is to then find an investor and then scale up. It's really important when you are finding an investor to think of them very clearly as a business partner. There's plenty of people out there with, you know, who will write a check you know, for the right business plan. But you want to make sure your investors aligned with your ethics and um, has has the same philosophy about your business as you do and um, and that you feel comfortable working with them because you're going to have a pretty close working relationship with them so it's not just about in finding investments not just about finding money it's about finding partners who will then provide you with expertise and guidance as well as the money so it's really important that um, that um, it is the right partner yeah, in business, there is no need to reinvent the wheel. You know, if you've got a problem in your business, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people have had that same problem and have worked out how to get past that problem. So, yeah, reaching out and getting that advice, yeah. it is so important. Steve, this has been brilliant. And we're going to be watching where Love Satan goes next. But if somebody wants to get some more information about the products or maybe even try it out, where do they go? So the best thing is our website, uh, www.lovesatan.com. Uh, where we have all the information and, and our web shop. We also have um, Instagram, Love Satan UK, and Facebook, Love Satan UK. We've just launched a YouTube channel. We've got one video up there. We were featured on a Channel 5 program called, called Secrets of the Fast Food Giants a few weeks ago. And the clip that we're featured in is actually on our YouTube channel. And are you open to other vegan businesses connecting with you, maybe on LinkedIn? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them do. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, I, personally, you know, my intention is I, you know, I've always wanted to use the experience we've had and help other vegan businesses. You know, it's a at the moment I'm very focused on Love Satan, but whatever help I can give, I will. And it's my intention in the future to give more. I have been speaking with Steve Swindon from Love Satan. And Steve, we really appreciate you giving up your time to hopefully help some other vegan businesses follow in your footsteps. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. And that was a great session. I remember after we finished recording, Steve and I, we kept going for about another half an hour just talking about business and new ideas. I, I wish I'd kept the recording going, actually. And like I said, if you want to find the video version of not just this session, but more than 30 hours worth of other masterclasses that we've recorded, then go check out the Academy section of the Vegan Business Tribe website, which which is accessible to all our members. And also, while you're there, also check out that information for Vegan Business Tribe Live on the 12th and 13th of November 2022 at the London Olympia, where you'll be able to hear Steve live as well. So 
thank you so much for joining us on this little bit of a special episode. And if you do know somebody else who's trying to scale up a vegan business, especially a food company at the moment, then please do send them a link to this episode because they will find it extraordinarily useful. And I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>